the problem with obesity is that the thermostat is misset and a switch is turned on which encourages you to store fat and not burn fat. And the best way to turn it off is going to be medications and or surgery combined with working on lifestyle adaption. It's not one or the other, it's using one to help the other. More than 70% of adults age 20 or older in the U.S. are overweight or obese. Is this a problem that's getting worse, or is this a problem that we're starting to get a handle on? Joining me today to answer those questions and more is Dr. Mitchell Rosland. He is the Director of Bariatric Surgery at Lenox Hill and Northern Westchester Hospitals. Welcome to 20 Minute Health Talk. Rob, thank you for having me. Most people think obesity is, is people that just, you know, eat too much. It's not that. How do people become obese? It's a very, very complicated story. The amount of obesity, which actually means excess fat, has increased. And with it, despite all the advantages that we've had in medicine, we have more people living with chronic diseases at a younger age. And that probably has to do with the change in our food supply, where we get our meals from, what we're eating. 85% of our population has some evidence of metabolic disease, 60% is overweight, and at many places, more than 40% is obese. And what I concentrate on, the severe morbidly obese or you know, obesity that's likely to cause a reduction in lifespan of significant reduction, 10 to 15 years, is up to between 8 and 10% of the population. That's a fascinating statistic is that this is a direct correlation to obesity and longevity. Why is that? Think of obesity as kind of like the furnace being on. It's a metabolic disease where basically you have increased glucose turnover, increased insulin turnover. And if you ever go outside on a cold day like today, cold, rainy, no one really wants to be outside, you'll see somebody who's very obese in shorts. And that's because their body's making so much heat. And there's a lot to be said when you see that. Number one, it tells you that when people are obese, their metabolic rate is high. It's not low. So what happens when they try to lose weight? That opposes the weight loss because their metabolism slows down. So, and it also tells you that people who are obese don't have a slow metabolism. The furnace is on. What happens if you leave the pump on your house always on? What happens if the car has more miles, wears out sooner? So when you get up to severe obesity, people lose between 10 and 15 years of life expectancy. Yeah. And I think what's also um, kind of scary too in this whole thing is that the, there's also a correlation with cancers. We tend to think of obesity as a lifestyle choice, lack of willpower, which is wrong. And we think of cancer as bad luck. But if you look at the risks of cancer death and obesity, they superimpose. I always like to talk about the state of Louisiana. Louisiana has the fourth highest obesity rate with highest mortality from cancer deaths. Cancer has become much more prevalent as obesity has risen. There are now 13 cancers that have been strongly associated with obesity. Now, whether obesity is the cause or it's kind of the kerosene on top of the fire because the same things that happen in obesity, high glucose, higher insulin rates, higher insulin-derived growth factor, they may just be feeding, creating a perfect nutritional environment for the tumor 
so that people who are obese who do have cancer tend to present at a higher stage and tend to be harder to treat. Yeah, I think in one of the the talks that you gave, um, you you mentioned how you don't really see cancer in muscles, right? The heart doesn't get <laughs> cancer. We would tend to think that cancer is random chance, but where there's a lot of activity, like in the heart, cancers are very, very rare. Muscles, it's kind of rare as well. So it seems that the more metabolic active parts of the body have managed to arrange safety mechanisms to allow them to have this high energy turnover. Um, and that's kind of what happens in cancer is that cancer cells can grow. It, basically the definition of cancer is unrestrained growth and cancer cells don't need oxygen, you know, and blood supply to grow very well. They'll get what they need just with glucose. Yeah. So with that said, so, you know, what causes obesity and can obesity be prevented at an early age? The biggest risk factor of obesity, like everything else, is somewhat genetic and you can't change your genes. But what you inherit and inherit is the likelihood and obviously lifestyle and doing things that are healthy are really, really important. I tell every patient that I can't out-operate a poor lifestyle. Stated differently, I'm not making the potato chip healthier. I'm changing your body around so hopefully you'll eat less and be full faster. So there really is only one way to treat obesity, and that's a healthy lifestyle. And the question is, what tools are we going to give you so that the thermostat in the brain and your body match. So it's, you, you, the problem with obesity is that the thermostat is misset and a switch is turned on, which encourages you to store fat and not burn fat. And that explains why when heavy people exercise, they're hungry and they eat more and it limits any weight loss. And when they reduce their calories, the body responds by making them hungrier and it becomes more efficient and opposes weight loss. So a switch is turned on and the best way to turn it off is going to be medications and or surgery combined with working on lifestyle adaption. It's not one or the other, it's using one to help the other. So when you talk about a switch, what exactly do you mean a switch? I know in my house, when my thermostat hits a certain temperature, it flips on and it goes and the heat comes on. So what I think happens in the body is we've adapted mechanisms that allow us to live when food was plentiful and food was scarce. And what we probably sense the most is fruit sugar because that's what we evolved from. And what happens in, in, in the body is that today's processed foods are basically sending the message to the, to the brain that food's going to be scarce and that we need to build up our fat stores. But instead of having that message, say, seasonally, like a bear would have before it's hibernating, we're getting that message chronically. And that's telling us to store fat for impending problems that are coming on. So adaptions that we've made that allowed us to survive in climates that weren't basically prosperous for food have been converted based on the alteration of our food supply. So 
basically what happens is the brain and the body believes that food's going to be scarce. It tells the body to store fat, not burn fat, to prepare for impending problems. Then what happens is you also develop an inflammatory response because this is not inert and it keeps on going on. And essentially, once as patients age, they begin to lose cellular function and they actually lose the ability to metabolize fat. So if you're not burning fat, you have to go eat more carbohydrate so that you can go up the stairs. So it explains why once people get obese, the drive to continuously eat, it's not willpower. If they didn't do that, they'd fall on the floor. Yeah. So like you're saying is basically as somebody who's obese and somebody who's a good weight, they could do the exact same thing, eat the exact same food, have the exact same day, but one is burning less fat than the other. You know, what I'm saying absolutely is when I grew up understanding and being taught about obesity, I was taught calories in, calories out, makes it seem like if there are any business people, I was like an accounting ledger, debits and credits. Unfortunately, the body doesn't exist in debits and credits. So when you go into a restaurant, you're seeing how many potential calories the food is, but you're not seeing internally how you process that fuel, how you burn that fuel. And that's where we're all different. So do I see patients where they say, you know, I'm going to the gym five times a week. I've changed my diet completely and I can't lose a pound. The answer is yes. Once they reach a certain point, that's entirely possible. And then when you calorically restrict them, they'll lose a nominal amount of weight, but as soon as they eat slightly more, they bounced right back. So it's a very complicated system and equation, and it's also very different in people. And we've done people a disservice by not understanding this really well. So how do you measure obesity then? Obesity is measured, and it's not the best way because we're not measuring body composition, by putting your height and weight together into a number of BMI. Normal BMI is approximately 25. Obesity is a BMI of 30. And severe obesity begins at a BMI of 35. So that's how we generally measure obesity. But as we go forward and we evolve as a field, we probably need more equipment than just a scale and begin to look at body composition And when you lose weight, the goal should be to lose fat tissue, not lose lean body mass, which is basically your muscle and bone. And the truth is when you lose weight, you lose a combination of all three of those things. And kind of what our whole focus here is at Northwell and with my team is to try to encourage you to lose the most fat while not losing muscle and bone. Easier said than done. Well, again, it goes to showing that You need to eat the right foods, not starvation. You need, potentially, if you have gut-altering surgery, you need to be on supplements. And you need to do a degree of resistance training. And again, as you and I both get older, Rob, you know, where we lose muscle, we lose bone, the body's metabolism slows down. So as you get older, you're losing mitochondrial function, which is the part of the cell that burns fat, You're losing muscle and bone and the importance of lifestyle really becomes more significant. So if you look at an aging population and you go down to Florida where my mother lives in Delray Beach and you look at the 85 and 90 year olds who are walking on the golf course, they've been active their whole life. When you say um, eat the right foods, 
what do you mean? What, what are the right foods to eat? Number one, I think the healthiest diet, that's one third of a protein source. So say chicken, fish, eggs, um, beef, lighter, probably the better, um, more farm raised, the better. And two thirds of foods that have fiber in it, like green vegetables, cauliflower, legumes. You want to limit your starch intake. And essentially if it comes out of a package or doesn't spoil, stay away from it unless it's almonds or nuts. So if you never went into the middle of the supermarket, you'd be absolutely fine. If you only put your food in a refrigerator, you'd be way better off. We've spent so much time confusing people with fat-free carbohydrate. Go back to a diet where things grew in the ground or where protein sources have one-third of a protein source, two-thirds of a source that has high in fiber. That is going to be the healthiest diet. Fiber is really important to keeping your gut healthy. And foods that have fiber tend to be, as I said, green vegetables, lagoons, cauliflower. And we have wonderful dietitians that can talk further on this subject. So something people might be wondering, I'm also wondering right now, is that, you know, earlier you had mentioned that this is a complicated story, and it certainly is. But for someone who is obese and they're not sure what to do, how do they know when to talk to their doctor about their weight? Excellent question. So first of all, my first answer is that I think it's really, really important that we begin treating people with obesity. And treatment doesn't necessarily mean medications or surgery, but assessing metabolic disease, looking at insulin levels, looking at even subtle things like fatty liver and infertility early on. And the earlier in the process, chances are the less invasive treatments are going to be more effective, whether that's behavior modifications, then pharmaceuticals, to the new drugs like Ozempic and Manjaro um, and the new drugs that are coming to bariatric surgery. And I think we're going to go through a transition where the idea is by more aggressively treating this, we can limit the chronic diseases that we're seeing, heart disease, um, diabetes, uh, sleep apnea, dementia on the other side, uh, and keep people off medications for those type, type of areas. So people who are more advanced, who have higher body mass indexes, people that are sleeping with sleep machines, people that already have cardiovascular disease, people that already have orthopedic impairment, people who are on insulin for diabetes really should seriously consider bariatric surgery. Yeah, and from what I understand, people who have these weight loss surgeries, their lives improve dramatically. It, sometimes people are become, they're no longer diabetic. They don't have problems sleeping, the sleep apnea. So what exactly is um, a, a weight loss surgery? Just describe what it does. So people like myself can manipulate the stomach or the stomach and the intestine. And we can either make the stomach smaller so that you get full faster, but it's not all mechanical when we actually take certain parts of the stomach out, we're changing some of the hormones that drive hunger and we can bypass parts of the intestine. And when we do that, what we do is we actually encourage the release of certain uh, hormones that are made in the intestine that stimulate satiety. When you actually speak to patients, they're enormously happy by and large. And you think, well, that's because they've lost weight. So the ends justify the means. 
something else is happening when bariatric surgery is well calibrated. Their desires, their brain and their GI tract match. Think about a baby doesn't need to be told to stop eating. It doesn't eat at all the breast milk at one time. It stops eating. There's a balance between the brain and the thermostat, taking in the adequate energy needs that goes astray. And bariatric surgery is the best way that we have right now of restoring that balance. And that's what I think gets lost a lot of times in the conversation. You're fixing the thermostat. Fixing the thermostat. And you're making the desires and the temptations match the GI tract. And as a result, that can lead to a positive lifestyle. Not to mention the cognitive impairments that people have with both metabolic disease, sleep apnea, and obesity. The truth is everything in the body is holistic and everything goes together. And what you eat and how it affects your body, it's more than weight. Weight may even be a marker of everything else that's going on, but it affects your brain, it affects your liver, it affects your reproductive system, and there's no way to treat things the idea that you're healthy, but right. is, is something we kind of have to abandon. So people who go through these surgeries, not only do they feel better because the weight loss and the pressure off their joints and other things, but psychologically they feel better. Especially for the first year. Sure. So there's certainly a honeymoon period of time, like everything else. There's no one answer that's true of anything. Would you say it's true that people who have these surgeries um, live longer? Oh, absolutely. There's data on that. Certainly for people that have advanced metabolic disease, their life expectancy can be reversed by 10 and 20 years. Wow. And those patients, from a research standpoint, would be the easiest to show an advantage for. Wow. And you're also a pioneer of a different type of um, weight loss surgery. Tell me a little bit about that. So when I came into this field, um, it was the era of gastric bypass, participated in the care of famous people that were featured on 60 Minutes who had gastric bypass. And I thought that was the panacea. And then we began to see those patients come back. Some extent, obesity is a chronic disease and goes into what I was saying, that you really have to change your lifestyle with these procedures. But what was interesting is the patients were telling us the same thing. I eat something, I feel lightheaded. The only way I relieve it at night is to eat more. And it sounded like reactive hypoglycemia, the sugar going up and down. And we looked at different operations and there was an operation called the duodenal switch, not used very much. It was considered very extreme that when we measured, we didn't see the same glucose fluctuations. So what we did is we simplified that operation, made it less drastic. It's called SADS or SIPS. And what's really interesting is when we put continuous glucose monitors, which are what diabetics wear, we don't see the ups and downs in glucose. And I think that's much, very much more preferable for long-term control of weight and eating behavior. When should people start to be concerned about their weight or what questions should they be asking their doctors? What should they do to be proactive to make sure they're not going to become obese? So quality of food, okay? Number one. Number one, quality of food. So it goes back to what I was saying. Try to limit the chips, the package, the processed food. Number two is... You can't be healthy unless you're physically fit. So we talked a lot about insulin and glucose. When you exercise, you actually don't need insulin to drive glucose into the cells. So you have to be active. Sleep is really important to energy regulation and also mental health. If you're depressed and down, you're not burning. Again, everything is systemic. In terms of markers for obesity, I tend to think People judge whether you're metabolically healthy or not based on your glucose and hemoglobin A1C. 
I think that's a late sign. I think looking more at fasting insulin, and this is another thing we'd like to tackle through the medical school is by looking at this from an epidemiologic approach. Should we be looking at different biomarkers that would alert us earlier? Yeah. And you know, when you, you say exercise, I think a lot of people's initial reaction to exercise is like, oh my God, I got to go join some expensive gym and I got to be doing all this work. Is walking good enough? <laughs> Anything's better. We were not made to be sedentary. So walking, running, swimming, cycling, getting, doing dancing, whatever you're going to do is an advantage. That was such a fascinating conversation. Dr. Mitchell Roslin, thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Health Talk. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure and I hope to continue it sometime in the future. Awesome. And for you, the listener, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Rob Hoyle. Have a great day and stay safe. Get more expert insight from the leading voices in healthcare today. You can subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk wherever podcasts are available.